Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture from the spectator world. I'm your host, Teresa Mull, and I'm joined today by W. James Antle III. He is the Washington Examiner's politics editor. He's written all over the place. He's very smart, very funny. No pressure, Jim. Wow. <laughs> I don't know if I can live up to this billing. Well, well, we'll see. You have you have time. So we're going to talk today about predictions for the midterm elections, the much hyped midterm elections. My colleague, our mutual friend, Matt Purple, just wrote an article about how it seems like the midterms are always hyped. It's always like the election that's going to change America forever, which... I want to get your take on what does the crystal ball of Jim Antle say about the the midterms? They're about two months away. What do you what do you see right now? What's well, gonna it's gonna change things for two years at least. So it's got that going for it. But I guess the the, the question is, are we getting a red wave or are we getting a red trickle? And right now, we're more on the trickle side of things. Trickle down. Economics may not be real, but trickle-down politics it seemingly is. So Republicans were in a very good position, even just about a month ago, but certainly two to three months ago, began the summer looking like you know they were, they were in a really good position to, to take back the House by a pretty good margin. All they need is a net gain of one seat to take the Senate because it's split 50-50. So... That didn't seem like it was going to be too much to hope for with Joe Biden's job approval ratings trending below 40 percent, some cases as low as 36 percent. His numbers with independents were and to some extent still are terrible. Uh, and Democrats seem to be pretty demoralized and disaffected. So, you know, it was never going to be so bad that all of these Democrats were going to come out and vote for Republicans. But they might not show up to vote in big numbers. And that's been a problem for Democrats historically anyway, is that they're very reliant on voting blocks that don't have reliable turnout in non-presidential election years. Whereas Republicans, you know, older voters, uh, parents of, of children, these are people who turn out pretty reliably. So if you have a bad election where they're angry and Democrats are a little dispirited, that's how you pick up, you know, 63 seats like they did in Barack Obama's first midterm election, 54 in Bill Clinton's first midterm election. And then just, of course, the history of the first midterm election uh, for uh, the party in the White House uh, since about 1938 and really even before that has been pretty bad. So history, Biden's job approval ratings and just the mood of the respective party bases overwhelmingly favored Republicans. So then starting with about Dobbs to the fact that Biden has gotten a handful of bills actually passed through Congress on his desk and signed, seems to have narrowed that enthusiasm gap a little bit. Democrats are motivated to turn out because they like abortion and because they think Biden and the Democrats with their narrow majorities have gotten some stuff done that they like. So that has made them a little less demoralized. 
And so while history and inflation and other things still very much favor Republicans, that's put Democrats a little bit back into the game. The other thing has been that a lot of the battleground state Senate races, the candidates who've emerged from the primaries, the Republican primaries, don't seem to have caught on yet in terms of their second act in the general election. And so in a number of these states, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Ohio, they're not trailing, but they're, they're closer than it should be. So Georgia, certainly, you're seeing some Republican Senate candidates not doing so well, which makes people fear that they can't even pick up the net gain of one, seats, one seat to retake the Senate. So things are looking worse than they were. Just the question is, does it stay that way after Labor Day? And sometimes, you know, the party that is trying to defend its majorities has a little bit of a false dawn in the summertime. And then we get, as we get closer to the election, things start to shift back to reality and shift back to what the basic underlying political conditions are. And even if inflation looks better, and even if they dodge a bullet on a recession by election day, there are a lot of fundamentals in this race that just don't favor the Democrats and Joe Biden. Let's talk about a couple of pieces you have had up recently on The Examiner. Talked about beating expectations could leave Democrats stuck with Biden in 2024. So basically, you know, if the Republicans don't show up, they don't perform as well as everyone thought. It's not going to be, as you said, so much a red tsunami. It's just like a little couple of little raindrops there with the Republicans. Yeah. Um, walk between the raindrops. To yeah. The <laughs> that's not necessarily good for Democrats in the long run. Stuck with Biden. Can you explain explain what you mean by that? Well, I've had a lot of Democrats on Twitter this afternoon tell me I'm, I'm very wrong about this. So I've gotten a little bit ratioed on it. But I, I think it's generally true that if you look at the New York Times Siena College poll that came out about a month or so ago, if you look at some other polling, there are a lot of Democrats that don't want Biden to run again in 2024. And part of that has to do with his age and a desire for a new generation of leadership in the party. And you saw some Democrats running in primaries just in the last few weeks kind of suggest that maybe it wouldn't be so bad if Biden didn't run for reelection. You know, one of them had to walk it back. But in general, people were sort of saying it was no done deal that Biden, who turns 80 later this year, two years before the presidential election, so he'd be 82 shortly after election day in, in 2024, that's that's totally unheard of from an age perspective. Ronald Reagan left office a little under a month before his 78th birthday. Biden entered office at age 78. So there's just age and just actuarial tables and just the realities of that you know, one, do voters want a president that old? Two, people of that age have health problems. They may die. You know, all kinds of things tend to happen. We've never, we're really in, in uncharted territory with Biden and a president being quite this old. And, and Biden, having been in the, the public spotlight since the 70s, late 60s, is clearly not at the top of his game. You know, I, I'm not a nice way saying, of putting it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not necessarily saying the guy's got dementia or anything like that, but I don't think he has the same energy level that he had as recently as when he was vice president and that he's not as good at delivering his lines 
and they and they were able to hide him a good bit on the campaign trail in 2020 because of COVID. Uh, but they're probably, unless there's some kind of new strain and, and new resurgence, they're probably not going to be able to get away with that in 2024. So I think that what we've seen with Bill Clinton and Barack Obama is when the voters were mad at them, they punished congressional Democrats, voted a bunch of them out of office, and then those incumbents rebounded by the time it was the presidential election year, and then they were able to successfully run for re-election. If Republicans don't do so hot this November, I think that strengthens Biden's case for why he should still be the nominee, even if he's getting older, and even if his job approval ratings are still not great, they're just better than they were, but he's still underwater and has been underwater now for well over a year. So, you know, it's maybe he can change them, but there are a lot of reasons to think that maybe he wouldn't be the strongest 2024 candidate, but the bet, the less bad Democrats do, the more likely they are going to be stuck with him because Biden himself isn't really going to, he's been running for president since before you were born. And, you know, he's not going to give up. So he finally got it. He's not going to give it up. I think very easily unless he has to. And so this, at least he needs an election result that's good enough to convince himself that he should run again. And so if he wants to run again, Democrats who like California Governor Gavin Newsom, who might want to run in his place, have a really tough choice ahead of them. Are they going to actually want to try to primary him and force him out, especially since the track record of doing that in recent election cycles has generally not been very good and has often led to the primary candidate losing the general election. So you know, if if the midterms go really badly, Democrats will still have a dilemma if Biden wants to run again, but he might be a little less likely to want to run again. And he might be more amenable to arguments that it's time to pass the torch. If they can say, oh, we're the, I'm the first Democratic president to add Senate seats in a midterm in a, my first midterm election since JFK, anything having to do with JFK sounds really good, especially Democrats of Biden's generation. So I would think he would be a little bit more inclined to run. And that may not be uh, the best outcome for Democrats in 2024. So it may be, unlike Clinton and Obama, things don't get at their worst in the midterm election. It may be actually in the presidential cycle that, that the bottom starts to drop out. So there is a silver lining for Republicans if they don't do as well, I suppose. You're also saying that 70 is not the new 50, despite what all those HGH commercials on Newsmax right. tell us. No. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I may soon want to believe that myself, but uh, <laughs> it's not looking that way, at least for the current occupant of the Oval Office. It does. It does age you, though. I mean, you look at those pictures of Obama when he was first in office and then, you know, eight years later, it's... Well, and that's the thing. So he's holding an office that ages people who hold it, including people who are in their early middle age. He is already the most aged person ever to hold this office. And it's going to further age him while he's in there. You know, I don't know. He's like 112 now. It's like dog years. It's like president years. years. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, they're really kind of rolling the dice here. Now, obviously, as every liberal on Twitter pointed out to me today, you know, obviously, if you're a Democrat, you would like to do as well as possible 
in the midterm elections rather than throw it in the hopes that you get a better presidential candidate or that Biden does better or, or, or whatever. And I, I certainly don't dispute that. But there are in politics things sort of, you know, pyrrhic victories, right? And so, you know, you can debate, you know, if, if Hillary Clinton had won in 2016, the 2018 elections probably wouldn't have gone as badly for Republicans as they did, in fact, in 2018. Uh, now, would it have been better to have Hillary and, and Republican majorities after 2018? You, I think you can argue that, but you, you can argue that either way. But I think it is a fact that one election result weakened the same party in the subsequent election. And I think that that's probably no different here, unless unless it really is, unless a, a decent midterm result, and I do think Republicans win the House pretty much either way, but it, a, a decent midterm result for Democrats, could it produce some lasting rebound for Biden where he just continues to go up and up and up and up? Maybe it could. I'm skeptical of that. I mean, I think a lot of what he's done either was bipartisan in terms of the latest legislative victories or would have been viewed as a disappointment in terms like with the reconciliation bill until the Democrats really felt they had no no choice but to pass something now. They were running out of time. You know, I'm not sure what he does for his next act. I mean, I, I know if Republicans win, they'll try to make Marjorie Taylor Greene seem like the Speaker of the House. And so they'll focus on certain colorful personalities and try to run against the Republican majorities, which has had some success for Democrats in the not too distant past. But Biden, by this time, we might see the economy really being beginning to seriously flirt with recession as a result, trying to wring out all the inflation with the interest rates and the slowing of monetary growth and all of that. And so having dodged the, that particular bullet in the midterms, Biden may be entering into a, a very difficult and very fraught period in the general election. And, and he'll be the incumbent. He'll own it. And Democrats will have a hard time, harder time taking it away from him. Well, speaking of 2024, and Gavin Newsom was mentioned briefly earlier, he said unequivocally in an interview recently, he's not seeking the presidential nomination in 24. Absolutely not. I don't know if you take seriously or believe anything he says, but he seemed pretty firm, at least 2024. Who knows what he's thinking beyond that? But he has said that. So aside from Newsom, whom do the Democrats have? I mean, Kamala Harris is not super popular. Does Hillary Clinton come back? What's what's it look like for the Democratic Party? Is is Biden their best bet? <laughs> well, Newsom is saying that, yes, he has said that, but everything he is doing communicates the opposite. So Newsom is the person who is most clearly putting himself in a position to run for president. Now, he may not, he may be serious in that he, he wouldn't try to primary Biden, but he's clearly contrasting himself with Ron DeSantis, who after Donald Trump is the, the next most likely Republican to be the 2024 nominee. He's contrasting California values with Florida values in a way in which he seems to think the California man or whatever is less crazy than Florida man, right? <laughs> um, right. So he's and, – and DeSantis is kind of in the same boat. So there, he can't really openly say that he would run against Trump, at least not at this point. 
Newsom has to kind of pretend he's not running against Biden. But all of the things that both men are doing kind of suggests they're at least putting themselves in a position where they could put together a presidential campaign in a short period of time. Now, if Newsom doesn't really doesn't want to do it, the Democrats' options are not very good. Uh, Harris isn't any more popular than Biden, probably less popular than Biden, and really couldn't run very effectively run against Biden. You know, she's the sitting vice president, would at least be very awkward, if not dysfunctional, if she tried to do that. Hillary Clinton coming back, uh, you know, wouldn't be wouldn't be great. The governor of Illinois, Pritzker, has clearly thought about some kind of presidential run. Uh, Not super telegenic, a real rich guy, though pretty liberal. Don't know if he can excite Democrats. I think if there's not a serious primary challenger who could beat Biden, it's possible he could face a gadfly candidate from the left. And I don't think it'll be Bernie Sanders. AOC you might have to look at. Uh, she's finally going to be constitutionally old enough to run for president in that cycle. I think she can raise a lot of money. I think even if she can't win, she could, uh, and I don't think she could win, but she could use her candidacy as a movement building exercise. And it is clear that she does view her political involvement as a sort of progressive activist thing uh, for the longer term and not just for, for one election cycle. So she's somebody who could maybe run against Biden, try to pull him to the left, you know, raise her own profile if it could be any higher, raise some money. The trouble would be that's exactly the kind of primary challenge that tends to weaken a general election candidate. So she probably couldn't beat Biden, uh, but she could drive up his negatives with certain types of voters and she could make progressives less enthusiastic than they otherwise maybe would have been. What about DeSantis Trump? What's your gut feeling? I just went to a rally in Pittsburgh for Doug Mastriano. I wrote about it. And DeSantis talked about himself for like 35 minutes. I think he mentioned right. Doug Mastriano like two times. It was very much seemed like a presidential speech and he was, you know, setting the stage for that. So obviously nobody would be surprised if he did decide to run. But what is your sense as far as the voters go? Do you think that they want Trump again? I interviewed a handful of people there, although people who are going to come out to a rally like that tend to be very, you know, staunchly, extremely conservative, ultra mega, if you will. So a lot pretty much everyone I talked to said, Trump, we want Trump, we want Trump. He was robbed. He, um, A lot of them thought the election was stolen, that kind of thing. But I don't know from your viewpoint if that's kind of the sense you get across the Republican Party. People are want Trump back or if they're more favoring DeSantis nowadays. What do you think? DeSantis is definitely the hotter thing of the two of them. He's the newer thing. And he's certainly, other than Trump, where most of the the center of the gravity of the party is at at this moment. But I do think if the election were held today, Trump would win the nomination. The question is, will that still be true after the midterms, especially if Trump-endorsed Senate candidates play a big role in Republicans not doing as well as they could? Will the rally around the flag effect of the Mar-a-Lago raid last, you know, regardless of what developments happen, of what new facts are learned. Now, the the answer to that could possibly be yes, because a lot of the rank-and-file voters aren't going to trust whatever the Biden Justice Department and whatever the FBI and whatever the national security state comes out with and says about Trump. 
particularly given the timing of this investigation. So it, it may be uh, that there's very little anybody could do to take the nomination away from Trump. I think DeSantis wants it and is going to try. And I think there are a couple of avenues open to him uh, if he wants to do that, assuming Republicans don't on their own decide that they're ready to move on or that somebody else gives them a better chance to win. I think, first of all, the big argument DeSantis has is that he can run for two terms and Trump can't. So he doesn't even have to criticize Trump. He doesn't necessarily want to criticize Trump because he wants all of those voters. He doesn't want to run a Liz Cheney, Larry Hogan kind of campaign to get 1% of the vote. He wants to be the heir to Trump. And so what he can say is, Trump is great. We need eight years, though, rather than four years. Everything I, we, I respect and admire, everything Trump did, I can continue that work for eight years. He can only do it for four because of the 22nd Amendment. Now, maybe that starts a big Republican push to repeal the 22nd Amendment. Ronald Reagan wanted to repeal it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's that would be tough to do. And that might be an argument that could work for DeSantis. The riskier one, but it's an opening that I think he has, is to run to the right of Trump on COVID and say, well, who gave us Anthony Fauci and made him a national figure and the, the, the basically the head guy in the federal government about how we were going to respond to COVID? That would be Donald Trump. Who went along with the lockdowns and the shutdowns in the early portions of 2020, even if he eventually kind of started to uh, resist them a little bit? That would be Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump basically did whatever the CDC told him to do, maybe with less smooth messaging than they would have preferred. But but that is a true fact. And for the most part, DeSantis did not do those things. And that became a big uh, badge of political honor for him and also a big reason why the left doesn't like him. It was the first big reason why progressives really went after him in a, in a hard way. That's an argument that DeSantis could make. That's a lot, obviously a lot riskier because it involves criticizing Trump and it involves whatever kind of response Trump is going to have back. Right. So, you know, now maybe Trump takes the bait and runs on the vaccine and runs on, on, you know, triangle tries to triangulate on COVID that could work in a general. I don't know that it works very well in Republican primary, but it's it's a risk that Trump is then just going to turn around and beat the hell out of DeSantis and drive up his negatives and make it harder for him to be viable in the future. But I think the recent history of presidential races has been you got to seize your moment. You got to strike while the iron is hot. I mean, Chris Christie, you know, looked like a much more likely presidential candidate, you know, had he run at the same time. Uh, that Mitt Romney won the nomination, then when he finally did, was an asterisk candidate, didn't always make it onto the main debate stage. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, I think, had a similar problem, probably should have tried to run against Hillary Clinton in 2016. Barack Obama didn't wait his turn for Hillary Clinton. He became president of the United States. So, you know, I, I think there's an argument if you're DeSantis, assuming DeSantis is reelected by a comfortable margin, as the polls currently suggest he will be. Uh, and Charlie Crist's campaign doesn't look very good at the moment. You know, assuming he's he's reelected and reelected by a, a decent margin, and I think he's going to take the plunge. Just a couple more questions. I know you're a busy man. You have articles to write and polls to analyze and such. But um, sure. getting back, to, <laughs> getting a lot back of to stuff. <laughs> getting back to the midterms. What 
races are you watching that you think are really going to be the big deciders in the red tsunami or lack thereof? And are there any kind of smaller races that the mainstream media isn't paying so much attention to, but you think will end up being more important than people are getting them credit for? Are there any little like surprise races that we should keep an eye on? So in terms of... Give us some insider trading tips. Yeah, exactly. Place your bets now. <laughs> you know, I, I think in, in the Senate races, it'll be interesting to see how these sort of Peter Thiel aligned populist Republican candidates running not just as Trump candidates on sort of Trump's personal grievances, but on a, a populist policy platform on immigration, trade, foreign policy, uh, Blake Masters in Arizona. J.D. Vance in Ohio. How do these candidates do? Um, Vance is certainly competitive in Ohio, though he's running against a Democrat who has really run a, a, about as good of a campaign as as you can in what's become what's been a swing state, but it's become a redder state. Ryan has really tried to run an Ohio-style campaign. He's kept the race close. You know, Vance maybe doesn't have as much money as he should at this point in the race. So I'd look at some of those. And then I'd look at a place like Pennsylvania, your, your home state, right? And the polling there shows Dr. Oz, who has not been the world, who's not lit the world on fire in terms of his personal appeal, but it shows him down, generally speaking, by a pretty decent margin. I know the Emerson poll had him only down by four, uh, but overall, you know, the, the race against John Fetterman who on paper ought to be very beatable from everything from how far left he is to his personal health situation and, and, and the lack of campaigning he's done. Although I guess Biden shows that maybe not campaigning is, is a good thing. Oz is an interesting character because the polling of Pennsylvania was pretty bad in, in the presidential races and definitely understated Trump's support both the year he won Pennsylvania, but even in 2020 when he, he ended up losing it by a fairly slim margin, you know, obviously, Mastriano and some others might disagree with me on that point. But but, you know, he was Trump was certainly competitive in Pennsylvania, even while losing the election in a way that Mitt Romney and John McCain simply were not. And so are the polls wrong again in Pennsylvania? And it is Oz doing better than the polls say. And, you know, I think this is a year that might test, you know, whether Trafalgar really is more accurate than a lot of other pollsters. And they're, once again, showing a lot of close races in situations where other pollsters are predicting that the Democrats are ahead. For smaller races, I'm really curious, and I think we'll see this more in the House than in the Senate, is do these Republican inroads with Hispanic voters continue to hold? And, you know, we, we had that, we had that uh, special election where in a majority Hispanic district, you had a, an upset Republican win. We've seen a ton of polling that suggests Hispanic voters are torn between Republicans and Democrats in this year's midterm elections. Hispanic voters, particularly in Florida, but not limited to Florida, even in Democratic states like New York, uh, Republicans made a lot of inroads with those voters there. If that continues, that can offset some of the loss of college-educated white suburban voters who've gone increasingly democratic and have remained democratic even in the face of some economic adversity, at least for now, if, if Republicans can capitalize on that, that really changes a lot of Democrats' you know, hopes for being able to turn Texas blue at some point, for being able to keep Florida a battleground state, 
And, you know, this whole emerging permanent Democratic majority theory kind of goes out the window. Well, Jim, there's obviously a lot to think about, a lot to look at, a lot of fun stuff, a lot to dread. I don't know. We'll have to have you back after the elections and see. (laughs) Lots of fear and loathing. We'll have you back after the elections to see how right you were to analyze the results. And maybe we can talk about football in the meantime, because that seems like a more fun sort of prediction game to talk about. Who's Who's going to be the Steelers starting quarterback? That's a good question. I think Big Ben's just going to come back. I think he's going to come out of retirement. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's kind of like the Trump of the the NFL, I think. You know, he was – he ended his career too soon. (laughs) Right. That's right. Got to leave them wanting more, though. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to this episode of The District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the U.S. edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, visit spectatorworld.com.